One. Tell this morning's sermon is why many will seek to enter but not be able. Why many will seek to enter but not be able. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 13. We'll look at verses 25 through 30. Uh, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We'll start at verse 22 for context because this morning's verses flow pretty uh, smoothly from the verses we studied last week. So verses 22 through 30. In Luke 13, it says, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages. He was teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And you can be seated. Father, we thank you like... Carl shared that we have been reconciled to you through your son, Jesus Christ, that your Holy Spirit uh, dwells in us, and uh, we have a teacher in us, Lord, who opens the eyes and ears of our hearts to understand the truths of your word, and so I um, pray for that this morning, Lord, that you would give us spiritual understanding, and as we read these verses, all the wonderful truths contained in them would become clear to us. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who uh, is not indwelt by your Holy Spirit, which is to say is not saved, hasn't yet repented, put their faith in Christ, I think these are some tremendous verses to create the fear in them, the, the healthy uh, fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom that would lead to salvation in their lives, Lord. And so we pray that's something that would be wrought in their hearts, that you'd open them to the gospel. I pray that you would do justice to these verses through me, your weak vessel, um, and that anything that you want to say to your people, whether it's in my notes or not, would become clear, Lord. And we thank you for this time. It's an, it's a, uh, we see it as, a, um, as worship. We wouldn't want to think that the worship concluded with the singing, um, but now really the singing prepared us for this time in your word. And so help us to be focused on you and what you want to say to us through the scriptures. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. There are some things in life that... We can be late for. You might not want to be late, but there's not any real problems if you're late. And then there's other things you definitely don't want to be late for, right? Any of you ever been late to a movie before? No? Okay, well. Have any of you been late for a sporting event before? Not really problematic, right? Have any of you ever been late for a flight? Or have you ever been late to catch a bus? That's more problematic, isn't it? I had this commander in ROTC. His name was Colonel Brewer. I've mentioned him a few times. He's a real instrumental person in my life. After uh, my father, probably the second most instrumental man, um, basically I grew up under my father, and then Colonel Brewer was in my life those four years, and he took on a somewhat fatherly role, a very strict man. 
And you recognize his strictness the first day he talks to you about his class because he told all of us, my class starts on time, and when my class starts, I lock the door and don't even bother trying to get in. And so we all, you know, made a point. I I saw uh, one gentleman was talking to me one time about Kerner Brewer's class, and he said that they were eating in the cafeteria together, or he not, they weren't sitting together in the cafeteria, but this gentleman was eating, one of the cadets was in the cafeteria, and he could see Colonel Brewer, who was also having a meal in the cafeteria, and the gentleman knew that he would be safe as long as he watched Colonel Brewer, because as soon as Colonel Brewer left the cafeteria, this gentleman would hop up, and he would follow Colonel Brewer to class, and then he'd make sure that he wouldn't be late. And so Colonel Brewer got up, and this gentleman followed Colonel Brewer to class, and apparently Colonel Brewer must have walked in at the last moment, because Colonel Brewer went in the classroom, turned around, locked the door, and that gentleman didn't make it into class that day. And he was telling me how how serious he was about that rule of his. And so I thought, wow, that's pretty serious, being locked out like that. Any examples in Scripture come to mind in in the Old Testament in particular of being locked out, of God shutting a door? I thought that must be an uh, incredibly terrifying account. You know, Noah spends his 120 years building the ark in the middle of dry land. It's never rained. number of people that must have mocked and ridiculed him and his sons as they worked on that uh, every day, I'm guessing most days at least. And then, uh, you know, the wickedness that had filled the earth, uh, nobody, I'm sure, had any good thought about what Noah and his sons are doing and then they board this ark, uh, the number of animals uh, join them. And then we read this verse, Genesis seven sixteen. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, they went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut them in. So God was the one who shut the door. And when he shut them in, he also shut out everyone that had not entered. And so I can't imagine what that must have been like, the terror as it started raining and the, and the uh, you know, the floodwaters of the earth open up and the earth begins to be lifted and, and these people uh, recognize that they're not going to make it. But I would say that as terrible and as terrifying as that would have been, it really doesn't approach the terror of what we read in these verses this morning. I really think that they're some of the most sobering in the Gospels, uh, being locked out as Jesus describes here. In last week's sermon, I'd say it like this. We made it halfway through verse 24. It looks like we covered verse 24 last week, but we basically only made it halfway. So look with me at verse 24 so you can see how the verse has two halves. Strive to enter through the narrow door. That's the first half. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so you see the two halves of the verse. The first half, which we looked at last week, is about people striving to enter through the narrow door while they still can. The second half of the verse is about people seeking to enter after it's too late. And so you could say that Jesus spoke of the narrow door that's open now, but the closed door that people are going to encounter later. And so not only is this door narrow and difficult to enter, requires uh, striving on our part, as we talked about last week, it's also a door that's not going to be open forever. There comes a time when it's going to be shut, and even shut in the faces of people who would want to be able to enter. One other thing I want you to notice, verse 24, look at the phrase, I tell you. Jesus says, I tell you. I was thinking of something. I might mention this um, later in the sermon as well. We were at the ACBC, well, we're, we're attending the streaming of the ACBC conference over the last three days in the fellowship hall, and Kevin DeYoung was talking about the importance for pastors 
not just to talk about stuff, but to speak to their people, for it to be personal. And so not just talk about a Savior, but make sure your people know that they need a Savior, that they know that they are sinners who need to be saved. And as he was describing this very personal way in which teachers should speak or preach to those people listening, I recognize that this is what Jesus does. As soon as Kevin said that, I thought Jesus did this very frequently. You're seeing a good example right here. He says, I tell you. That is very personal when Jesus spoke to these people. They knew that he was talking to them. And what's interesting is the word you occurs 13 times in verses 24 through 28. The word you occurs 13 times in verses 24 to 28. And so when we talk about a a teacher speaking very personally to those listening, we have a great example of that in, in the premier teacher, Jesus Christ himself. So because Jesus wanted to make this personal, we want to keep that in mind. I mean, that's what, when he says you, he's making this personal. Because Jesus wanted this to be personal, let's make sure that we keep that in mind and that it's personal to us as we read these verses. And I would say especially consider whether you're someone who hasn't yet entered through the narrow door, because there will be a time that that door is shut and there will be people who are unable to enter. And you can see some of the terror that they experience in these verses. Look at verse 25 with all that in mind. It says, When once the master of the house has risen and has shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank, or I almost picture them saying, but we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Now, this is interesting. Let me ask you this. When you look at the way these people speak, do they seem to be individuals who openly rejected Christ? No, they don't look that way uh, to me at all. Do they seem surprised? Do they seem somewhat shocked at the door being closed to them? These were not people who had rejected Christ openly. They had spent time with him during his earthly ministry. Are these people who had uh, been around him? Yes, they had listened to his teaching. They had probably observed him perform some number of miracles. What, what is actually the most intimate thing that they did with him that they mentioned? We ate and drank with you. That's a fairly intimate form of fellowship, especially in the ancient world, to sit and have a meal together. Jesus was criticized other times for doing what with sinners because it was so intimate, eating and drinking. And so these people say, this is what we did with you. We ate and drank with you. We had fellowship with you. How could you close the door to us like this? And the simple way to say it is these are people who thought that they were what? Yeah, they thought that they were saved. They thought that they had a relationship with Christ. These aren't atheists. These aren't agnostics. I wouldn't say that these are even Buddhists or Muslims who are coming in. These are people who thought that they had a relationship with Christ. They mentioned their behavior that led them to this conclusion. They point out what they thought should have allowed them to be able to enter. They thought they were on this very good standing with Christ. They're surprised that the door would be shut in their face. Look what Jesus says in response to them in verse 27. He will say, I tell you, 
I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And so it's evident that their claim to have been in social settings with Jesus or enjoyed some amount of his presence or teaching or perhaps the performance of his miracles had no real weight with him. These claims were very insignificant to Christ. If I had to think of what these people would be like today, it would be religious people. It, it, would be, it would be churchgoers. It would be people who claim to have spent time with Christ, people who would claim to have listened to his teaching through the preaching of his word, people who, one, one commentator, I thought this was interesting, I'm not saying that, that I'm convinced that this is necessarily the case, there might be a, a devotional aspect to this, he said that the individuals who are claiming to have eaten and drinking with Christ would be people who have partaken in communion. Whether that's absolutely true or not, I will say this, these are people who clearly thought that they had a relationship with Jesus, and they are, thought, and they are shut out. You might recognize these verses, uh, or, or they might seem similar to you, probably not so much from uh, Luke's gospel, but from Matthew's gospel in chapter 7. The people say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus ends up saying, depart from me. These are probably the best examples, those people in Matthew 7 and these people here in Luke 13, of a false sense of security. There are individuals who will believe that they're saved until the day of judgment when they have to stand before the Lord and find out that they did not have a saving relationship with him and that the religious activity that they had engaged in did not save them and was not evidence of their salvation. Notice two times in these verses, verse 25 and 27, Jesus said, I do not know where you come from. He said that two times to them. I do not know where you come from. He says it once, they object, and then he says it to them a second time. They thought they knew him, but he did not know them. He told them the exact opposite of what they expected. And this brings us to lesson one. The question is, does the Lord know you? The question is, does the Lord know you? So it seems to me that it is not enough to know something of Jesus. It's not enough to have some association with him or to have engaged in some amount of religious activity that would give people the impression that they have a relationship with him. He must know us or he must recognize us. When Jesus says, I do not know where you come from, it almost sounds like a criticism of his omniscience. Or it almost sounds as though there are, omniscience refers to um, God being all-knowing. And it almost sounds like, well, you say, are there people that Jesus really didn't know? I mean, he was God in the flesh. Is this like he didn't, he didn't know the day or hour of his return, and there's also some people he didn't know? That's not what's going on here. It's not to say that he didn't know where they're from, as literally as it sounds. And it's not to say that he wouldn't have known uh, most things or maybe all things about these people. It's to say that he didn't know them in what way? in a saving way. He was not their savior. They had not repented and surrendered their lives to him. He did not know them in a salvific way. It's very similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 23, when he said, I never knew you. And so what's interesting is this isn't a breakup. It's not as though there was a relationship that's being ended here. Jesus says, I never knew you, which means what? These aren't people losing their salvation. These are people who 
were never saved. There was never a relationship to begin with, despite what these people thought, or despite of how it might have looked to them. There had been no relationship that was being brought to an end at this point. When we talk about salvation, and I'm comfortable with this language, I've used this language before, we'll say, does he know the Lord? Or do you know the Lord? Or I know the Lord, or she knows the Lord. But I would say it's not just an issue of whether people say that they know the Lord. It is not just an issue of whether people say that they know the Lord. It's an issue of whether the Lord knows us. And one of the reasons that I stress that is who's going to tell you that they know the Lord? Who's going to claim to know Christ? Mormons, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe some people that go to Christian churches throughout their lives. Many of these people are going to claim to know Christ. We could even go further than that, and we could say Muslims would claim to know Christ. They don't recognize him uh, as God in the flesh, but do Muslims hold Jesus in a high regard, or they would say highly, that they highly esteem him as a, as a respected prophet, so far below what he deserves. But the fact is, Muslims would tell you that they know Jesus. But it doesn't mean the Lord knows them, which is to say he doesn't have a relationship with them. And so if you speak to people in false religions who claim to know Christ, you might turn to them and you might say, okay, well, you claim to know Jesus, but the real question is, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, I do not know where you come from, and you can write Galatians 4.9. You can circle, I do not know where you come from, and you can write Galatians 4.9, which says, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And so when Paul says that we come to faith, it's not so much an issue. It's almost like he corrects himself or corrects a possible misunderstanding He says, now that you've come to know God, or rather, or instead, have come to be known by God, because now you are his what? Now you are his child. Now you are his son or his daughter. We must be known by God, but the people in this parable were not. Interestingly, notice this two times in verses 23 and 25, they said, Lord. What does Lord mean? It means master, right? Well, this might be even stronger evidence, at least to them, of their salvation than being able to eat and drink with Jesus. They said that he was the Lord of their lives. Now, what's harder, saying the right thing or doing the right thing? (laughs) Anyone can can say something, It's easy to say something. It's easy to claim to do something, or it's easy to claim that something is the case, but it's much harder to do the right thing, or it's much harder to ensure that what we say is actually true. And what can anyone say about Jesus, or what can anyone even call Jesus? Lord. But it's another thing entirely for Jesus to be our Lord. Even though these people spent time with Jesus, and even though they called him Lord, he was not the Lord of their lives. This is not speculation on my part. We know that Jesus was not their Lord because Lord means master. And if Jesus, and look in the verse, if Jesus had been the Lord or the master of their lives, they would not have been what? 
Let me say this one more time. They call Jesus Lord. If Jesus had been the Lord or master of their lives, they would not have been what? Workers of evil. Workers of evil. Jesus doesn't say that they were workers of evil. He says that they are workers of evil, presently, currently. The tense lets us know that Jesus is saying this to people who are workers of evil. Had Jesus been their Lord, this could not have been the case with them. It's similar to the parallel account in Matthew 7, verse 23, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you what? You workers of lawlessness. And you see the same thing said here. Sin is a habit. Uh, Let me say it like this. Sin is an unbroken habit. Because all of us sin, but sin was an unbroken habit or unbroken pattern in their lives, which was evidence that they were not Christians. The issue is that they had not repented, and this brings us to lesson two. The Lord doesn't know people who haven't repented. The Lord doesn't know people who haven't repented. Do Christians sin? Do Christians sin? Yes, we sin. We will continue to sin as long as we remain on this side of heaven. We will sin until our last breath. But when we become Christians, God puts his Holy Spirit in us. We're not saved by any amount of sinlessness or holiness. But there must be an amount of holiness that characterizes our lives that is or serves as an evidence of our salvation. Because how could the Holy Spirit be in a person and that person not be holy? With God's Holy Spirit indwelling us, you might, we might behave in certain ways or we might see things, but we would always have a conviction about that. There would always be a shame, there would be a guilt there would be a regret associated with doing it. Would there ever not be that guilt or shame or regret or conviction, then that would be evidence that the Holy Spirit is not indwelling someone. When God puts his Holy Spirit in us, we become uncomfortable associated with doing those things that displease God. And it doesn't mean that we don't do things that displease God. We all do, but it it isn't It isn't comfortable for us. There's that struggle that Paul describes at the end of Romans 7, verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so Paul is describing this struggle that is evident in every Christian's life. And it's almost like we just have to plan ourselves in different places in Scripture, depending on where we're at spiritually. The believer who's struggling against sin plants, should plant himself or herself at the end of Romans 7. It's this safe haven for all of us in this war against sin that plagues us into, uh, as long as we're living this life. Now, the person who's not a Christian, they need to go to John, 1 John, and they need to look at those verses about uh, being unbelievers because they have habitual or unbroken sin in their lives without any sort of conviction associated with it. Now, here's my whole point in that contrast. We're talking about the struggle against sin that all Christians face. What's the problem for these people? They didn't have that struggle. The struggle that characterizes the Christian life was not present in their life. That's the problem for these people. There was no war against sin. 
Notice one more thing about verse 27. The words depart from me, and I think it might be a little clearer in the Greek, they're said with an amount of scornful indignation. Jesus doesn't say this compassionately to them. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't have compassion for people, and I'm not even saying that Jesus doesn't have compassion for these people, but I am saying that it doesn't come out in these verses. Instead, he simply casts them out of his presence. There is no hesitation whatsoever. It'll be an, an absolutely terrifying scene. I don't know how much familiarity as believers will have with it on that day of judgment with the great white throne and Christ sitting on it and all of those unbelievers throughout all of human history resurrected to stand before it and then cast into the lake of fire. But I can tell you this, when it takes place, it will take place without any amount of compassion or pity being shown from Jesus when he sends them there. He will not be regretting it. He's not going to be crying about it. He's not, you're not going to wonder if he's doing the right thing. These are people who have rejected him throughout their lifetimes, and you start to see a hint of that scornful indignation right here when he says, depart from me. Now, how do we explain this hostility that Jesus seemed to feel toward those people, especially when they didn't seem to reject him? Or we could even go further and say, how do we explain Christ's hostility toward these people when they seem to have an amount of at least interest, but possibly even affection for Christ. And I think the hostility is explained in the word hypocrisy. I think it's the hypocrisy of these people that caused Jesus so much indignation. They said they had a relationship with him, but they didn't live like it. They claimed to have heard his teaching, but they didn't do what with it? They didn't apply it to their lives. If they had applied it to their lives, they wouldn't be workers of evil. It's that description of them that is so significant. I don't even know if this parable would make sense if we did not have the master calling these people workers of evil. Then we would have to look and wonder why he would treat them this way, why they would be locked out. But it's that description, them being workers of evil, living lives of rebellion to Christ, that creates this hostility toward them. Listen to this verse that summarizes all of this well. 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So one more time, the Lord knows those who are his. This is what we're talking about, right? The Lord knows his people. It's not so much about us claiming to know Christ. It's about Christ knowing us. And it says everyone who does claim the name of the Lord has departed from evil or wickedness. And that's the problem with these people. They claim the name of the Lord or they call him Lord, but they have not departed from iniquity, which is to say they have not repented. And we're looking at one of the main problems, or maybe the main problem, with easy believism. It doesn't preach repentance. You, you have people who have been told if they just believe or if they just recite these words, and I'm not uh, remotely opposed to um, preaching belief or, or preaching um, some number of words or even helping people who might stumble and saying, why don't, why don't we pray together or may I lead you in this prayer? But ensure that you're also preaching repentance, that for people to embrace Christ as Savior, 
requires a repentance or turning from their sin. And easy believism leaves out repentance, and without repentance, there's not salvation. Now, give me, give me a little latitude for a moment and I'll, uh, as I build up to my point that I want to make. We were uh, watching the ACBC training live streaming Thursday through Saturday. ACBC, by the way, it stands for Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. It was previously called NANC, the National Association of Nuthetic Counseling. And I suppose they changed the name because nobody knew what nuthetic meant. It's a Greek word associated with admonish, which is what counseling is. You're admonishing people. And I'm telling you this because the father of this movement is a gentleman named Jay Adams. I'm very thankful for him. I don't, I don't know him, but heard his name enough times and enough people praise the work that he's done and laying this great foundation for biblical counseling. And that's really what he did was he wrote a book called Competent to Counsel, and, and he argued that the solutions to life's problems are found in the Word of God and don't need to be found somewhere else. And that's essentially what biblical counseling it is, is people come to you with their problems and you find the solutions for them in God's Word. And so the best way to, to be able to counsel people biblically is to know the Word of God well so you can point them to those places in the Scripture that address the issues. Well, when we were at the, I guess I got a little distracted uh, in the training and I started to read about Jay Adams a little bit. And he received considerable criticism, probably not surprisingly, from the world of psychology. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Uh, Jay Adams comes out preaching that the solution to the solutions to all of man's problems can be found within God's word. And what I, what we mean by that? It doesn't. If you're talking to someone and they were struggling with, uh, perhaps they were addicted to video games. That doesn't mean that you're going to go to the Bible and you're going to be able to find verses about video games, but you're going to be able to find verses about what? Addiction. Well said, exactly. So there's those principles that allow you to counsel whatever sin or struggle people have. The probably best-known book um, associated with the world of psychology is the Baker Encyclopedia of Psychology and Counseling. In that, that book criticizes Jay Adams, and just listen to this criticism. Adams' confront, or confrontation is essential to the theory of Jay Adams. Let me say one more time. Here's the criticism of Jay Adams, that confrontation is essential to the theory of Jay Adams. So when the world of psychology wanted to criticize Jay Adams or criticize biblical counseling, the criticism is basically that Jay Adams wants to confront. We would say confront sin. And so they condemn Adams for confronting, which is basically condemning him for trying to see what produced in people's lives. Repentance. Now, it would make sense that psychology would condemn Adams for this because psychology works against repentance. Why does psychology teach that people do bad things? Because bad things happen to them. You mistreated this person because you were mistreated. You acted this way when you got older because your father did not love you enough. You lashed out at your coworkers because your boss did not give you the raise that you deserved. And so there's actually an undermining of the conviction that people should receive that could produce repentance in their lives because essentially there's no such thing as a bad person in the world of psychology there's just people whom bad things have happened to. And as a result of what they've suffered, they've done these bad things. Do we see how antithetical that is to God's word? Why do we do bad things? 
because we're bad. We've been given a sin nature from our father, Adam. The Bible teaches that we sin not because of all of these bad things that happen to us, but because we are sinners, that through and through we love darkness more than we love light. And so the only solution then is repentance. The very worst thing that can be done for people is for that conviction to be undermined or for them to be convinced that they haven't really done something wrong, that it's not really their fault, that these other people in their lives or these other circumstances or situations that they've experienced are really to blame for that bad thing. And this is how bad it is. If a, if a child or let's say a teenager goes onto a school campus and shoots up a bunch of people, what is the very first thing the world does? They want to give him an excuse. They want to give him an excuse. They want to find out who it was that had mistreated him. Was it the other kids at school that were bullying him? Was it his parents who had mistreated him? But there must have been something. It could not have been his fault. He couldn't have just went on that campus and shot those people because he's evil. Because that would sound what? Unloving, intolerant, and we just can't say that about people. And that is psychology. I never cringe when people condemn psychology. I always rejoice inwardly because I recognize how opposed much of it is to God's word. And here's why I'm telling you this. Christianity without confronting sin or Christianity without repentance is easy believism. And easy believism is much closer to psychology than it is to Christianity. As soon as you give people easy believism that lacks repentance, it looks more like psychology than it looks like Christianity. One of the ACBC speakers was from China. And for those of you who are, who are uh, with us in the fellowship hall, you might remember when he said that the biggest problem in China, believe it or not, it's not a lack of missionaries. He didn't even say that it's a lack of Bibles. He said it's a lack of preaching repentance. He said it's easy believism. He said people are not being told to turn from their sin or recognize their sinfulness so that they would... And if you don't recognize your sinfulness and you're clinging to Christ for some other reason than him saving you from your sin, which is to say you're clinging to Christ for some other reason than what the Bible says you need Christ for. And what, what reason would they give then? He'll make your life better. Or he'll, he'll make you happy. He'll fulfill your wildest dreams. He'll, give you, he'll help your marriage. Now, some of those things can be true. There can be incredible help for a marriage or for a family when Christ is introduced, but that is not why we cling to Christ. We cling to Christ because we don't want to go to hell. We cling to Christ because we're sinners and the wrath of God hangs on us, and Christ will take that wrath that we deserve. He will be that substitutionary atonement for us. And the reason easy believism is so dangerous is because you could listen to this and say, well, Pastor Scott, maybe you're being too hard. I'm not being too hard. The reason easy believism is so dangerous is because of how much it looks like Christianity, because of how close it is, because of how much it sounds like the gospel. Or I'll say it like this, the reason easy believism is so dangerous is because of how well it preaches. Because how are we saved? We are saved by belief. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by believing in Christ. And so easy believism sounds so close to the gospel, it, is, it can be so difficult to discern and recognize the error in it. 
But repentance must be preached. People must recognize their sinfulness and need for a Savior to be saved. And I want to show you just how important repentance is. Look back at verse 25. In this verse, you can see two significant things that could not take the place of repentance. These people ate and drank in Christ's presence, and these people listened to Jesus teach in their streets, and those things could not take the place of repentance. That means you could spend time with Jesus, you could listen to his teaching, and those things will not serve as substitutes for repentance. And without repentance, people go to hell. Look at verse 28. We can tell from Jesus' words that that's where these people went. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is gospel language or Christ language for hell. And if you pause here for a moment, does hell sound like a sort of mindless oblivion? Come on. <laughs> no, it doesn't. There's nothing mindless. It's, it's almost like I think sometimes we think like this. We think, now I'm experiencing a reality. And when I die, it'll be like a dream. Like, this is the reality, but when I die, I'll be less conscious, and then it will be more like a dream than it is now. No, that's backward. If anything, this is more like the dream. The next life is when there's greater clarity. The next life is when there's, you're, uh, let's say, more awake than you are now. And this is one of those verses that describes that, that awareness that people have. They're weeping. They're gnashing their teeth. D.A. Carson said, the definite articles with weeping and gnashing emphasize the horror of the scene. The weeping and the gnashing. Weeping suggests suffering and gnashing of teeth suggests despair. Can you imagine the despair for people who are in hell that know it will never end? Someone said one time, that the hell within hell is the recognition that it never comes to an end. Isn't everything in life more bearable when you consider that it will come to an end? Even if you were in excruciating pain or misery, what do we tell ourselves? We say, it's only going to last until this life is over and then. And so we're filled with this hope associated with the next life. People in hell don't have that. They know that what they're experiencing will never end, which, takes, which introduces another level of suffering that's almost uh, unimaginable. So we see Jesus was not afraid to speak about hell. He spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. He spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible spoke about hell. And he spoke about hell with greater clarity than anyone else in the Bible spoke about hell. Charles Spurgeon said, There are some ministers who never mention anything about hell. I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which it is not polite to even mention. And then Charles Spurgeon said, he should not have been allowed to preach again, I am sure, if he could not use plain words. Call it what it is. It is hell. I mean, it sounds like a bad word to the world, but it should be something that's preached from the pulpit when we encounter it in Scripture. A terrifying place that all of us should living with an immense thankfulness toward Christ for delivering us from. The good news of the gospel isn't just that you get to go to heaven. The good news of the gospel is also that we don't have to go to hell for our sins as we deserve. Sometimes I think if we were shown 
a window into hell and the horror of it, how much more we love Christ. Have you ever thought about that? If you just for a, had an inkling of the horror of hell, how much more thankful you would be for Jesus and what he has spared us from? Before we read the last few verses, I want to share something with you. I feel like the best way to appreciate what it was like for the Jews who heard Jesus say this is to put ourselves in, in their place. If we don't, we're not going to appreciate how incredibly shocking Jesus's words actually were. So just bear with me for a moment and try to imagine that you're in the place of one of these Jews who hears Jesus say this. And probably the only way to be in the place of one of these Jews is to consider the great spiritual privileges or status that these Jews knew. Let me just read a few places that give us understanding. Romans 3.1, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God is a way to refer to the Word of God, or what we know as the Bible, and that was given to the Jews. They were given the very Word of God itself. Romans 9, 4, they're Israelites, and to them belong. Listen to all this that belonged to the Jews. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh, even Christ himself, because he came from the Jews, whose God overall blessed forever. Spiritually speaking, second only to our sonship or becoming Christians, it is hard to imagine anyone being given more than the Jews had been given. Now, you imagine that you're one of these Jews listening to Jesus. You, you can see him. Consider the great spiritual privileges that have been yours and your ancestors. Because of that, what do you tend to think about yourself that you're going where? Simply because you're a Jew. You know you're going to heaven because you are a Jew. Listen to what they said to Jesus when he was trying to set them free from sin. John 8, 33, they said, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say to us, you will become free? Why did they say that to Jesus when he was trying to free him from sin? Because they thought they didn't need to be free from sin. They thought that they were descendants of Abraham who, who would usher them into the gates. A few verses later, John 8, 39, they said, Abraham is our father. They kept saying Abraham is their father because essentially that's code for we're going to heaven. There's nothing you can do about it. Heaven belongs to us. We are God's people. If anyone's going there, it's us. We're going first. Everyone else is behind us. Think of when John, how, how was John speaking of repentance? Oh, that's kind of the answer. I gave you the answer. How was John preparing the way for the Messiah? By preaching what? <laughs> repentance. So John's preaching repentance, and these Jews are coming out, and what did John have to tell them to stop saying? What did John have to tell the Jews who were coming out to be baptized to stop saying? We have Abraham as our father. Matthew 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John wanted to see them repent, and he recognized that the biggest obstacle to their repentance 
was their descendancy from Abraham because they were so convinced that being his descendants meant they didn't need to repent. And so the simple point is this. The Jews thought they were going to heaven because they were Jews. Now, the second, the next point I want you to consider, who did the Jews think was not going to heaven? Us, Gentiles. Point to yourself unless you happen to be a Jew. With that in mind, look at verse 24. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When Jesus says, Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able, do you know what the Jews did? They went like this. They went, Yep, those Gentiles. Those Gentiles are going to seek to enter, and they're not going to be able. Look at the shock in verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and he has shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from and who is the you. It's the Jews. It was Jews listening to this recognizing that Jesus was telling them that they were the ones who were going to be locked out, that the door would be shut to them. Verse 26, Jesus said, you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Whose streets did Jesus teach in? The Jews. He spent his entire ministry, except for a very small part of it, in Jewish territory. Who was it that ate and drank with Jesus? It was Jews. This is not Gentiles. Now look at the second half of verse 28, which we haven't looked at yet. Jesus says, you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. So will there be some Jews in heaven? And we know this. There will be. There will be the the patriarchs, there will be the prophets. We know that the early church was entirely Jewish, thousands of Jews that were saved, but thousands out of millions is still what we talked about in a recent sermon, only a remnant, right? And then it gets even worse. Just when you think the Jews could not be more infuriated at Jesus for what he's saying, look at what he says in verse 29. People will come from the east and west and from the north and south, and they will recline at table and the kingdom of God. Who is this verse describing entering the kingdom of God? Gentiles. I mean, talk about adding insult to injury. Talk about making the Jews' situation even worse. Jesus says, you Jews are not going in, but the Gentiles are. You will see them in the kingdom of God while you yourselves are cast out. I mean, hell is going to be absolutely terrible for anyone, but I think it's going to be even worse for the Jews who thought that they would be in there and the Gentiles would be out. But instead, it's going to be the opposite of what they thought. Or in other words, it's going to be like what? The first is last and the last is first, right? Which is what Jesus says in verse 30. And behold, some are last who will be first. And who's that? That's the Gentiles, right? Some are last who will be first. That's the Gentiles who will be moved to the front of the line. And some are first who will be last. And that's the Jews who are going to be made last. And this brings us to lesson three. There will be surprises in the kingdom of God. 
there will be surprises in the kingdom of God. I'm not the most, um, what would be the word, gentle person, or I don't say things as gently as I should. Even I look at Jesus sometimes, and I'm surprised by how shocking he was. I mean, I can appreciate bold, forward language, and I even look at Jesus sometimes, and I'm like, are you trying to upset the people who are listening to you? Are you trying to be as infuriating as possible? This is definitely one of those times where it's like Jesus knew his audience, and it's almost like, what will make them angrier than anything else. I'll tell them that they'll be kept out of the kingdom of God. I'll tell these Jews that, and the Gentiles will be brought in. One commentator, France, his last name is France, he said regarding the Gentiles being part of the kingdom of God and the Jews being excluded, he said, there could hardly be a more radical statement of the change in God's plan of salvation inaugurated by the mission of Jesus than what he shared right here, that the Jews would be excluded and the Gentiles would be included. So human expectations, do you see how they're reversed here? The kingdom of God is going to be much different than we expect. When we get there, we're going to be surprised by who is there, probably be surprised that maybe we're there. We're going to be surprised by who's not there. There are going to be people who have been very prominent in this life, people that we might expect to be there, and they're going to be completely unknown in the next life. They're going to be people that we have never heard of, people completely unknown on this side of heaven, and they are going to be very prominent in the next life. Who am I talking about? Well, I'm be talking about martyrs. I won't be surprised if martyrs are the most prominent people in the kingdom of God. I will not be surprised if nobody is respected or revered as much as martyrs, second only to Christ himself or Christians who are persecuted for their faith. And can I, can I just be candid with you for a moment? I will not be surprised if most of us are not prominent in the kingdom of God. Most of us have not sacrificed, and I definitely include myself in this, sacrificed very much for our faith. It has not been very difficult for us to be Christians. I was even just yesterday, we were walking, and Katie, she sees this gentleman on the, sitting on the, side of the, on the sidewalk, and he had walked past our house some number of times, and Katie said, you ought to go invite this guy to church. So I walk up to him, and he's, he's smoking, and then he kind of hawks up something and spits it out of his mouth, and I'm like three feet from him. And my whole point in telling him smoking and spitting stuff out of his mouth was he doesn't look like someone that's going to be very receptive to an invitation to church. So I walk up to him, and I, I kind of introduce myself, and, and I said, I think you've walked past our house different times, and he's very friendly to me. And then I kind of buying my time, trying to get to know him a little bit. And then I said, hey, well, you know, my name's Scott. I'm a pastor over here at this church, Woodland Christian Church, kind of point out. And then he knows what this is all about. And so then things kind of changed a little bit. But this is interesting. When I invited him to church, this is what he said. I kindly decline. That's about the worst we get. A kind declining. I mean, that's what we suffer. We get someone that says, I kindly decline your invitation. We're not suffering for our faith here. I don't think we're going to be very prominent. But those of you who might suffer with disease or even excruciating pain for much of your life and you don't criticize the Lord for it, for what you experience, one of the things that I've seen some people suffer through that I think could be highly appreciated by the Lord is people in difficult marriages. 
What do, most, what do many people do when they're in a difficult marriage? They just take off. I've talked to some people, and you listen to them, and you think, if half of what you're saying is true, it is a nightmare being in your relationship. I would despise having to be married to your spouse. And they stay married to that person because of the covenant that they entered. And I think God appreciates that. People who have experienced terrible loss, maybe the loss of a child, they remain faithful to Christ. I could see great prominence for those people because of what they've been through. People remaining faithful in situations that they're tempted to run from. Missionaries serving in poverty in third world countries. Persecuted Christians holding to their faith in Christ. Those are the last who are going to be first in the kingdom of God. All of these people, they might be completely unknown, so many or everyone unfamiliar with what they're going through, but God sees it. He's aware of it, and it's going to make them first in the kingdom. Look at the end of verse 29. It says, recline at table in the kingdom of God. Even though it's only a few words, this is a little window into what heaven will be like. There's a, I mean, just only a few words, but we can get an idea of what is in store for us in heaven. First, notice, it seems to be a place of rest. We're sitting down, it looks like. It seems to be a place of fellowship. We're going to enjoy the company of all of the other believers who have come from the north and south and east and west. We'll have the company of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, and all the other believers that we'll have eternity getting to know. It seems like we'll meet people from all over the earth throughout all of human history. Spurgeon said, But you shall hear those loved voices again. For those of you who have lost loved ones who have died in the faith, you will hear their voices again. You shall hear those sweet voices once more. You shall yet know that those whom you loved have been loved by God. Would not that be a dreary heaven for us to inhabit where we should be alike unknowing and be unknown? I would not care to go to such a heaven as that. I believe that heaven is a fellowship of the saints and that we shall know one another there. So that's one of the joys with heaven or of heaven besides just being with Christ will also be being with all believers or those loved ones we've lost. I want to conclude with this. In verse 30, Jesus said, some, referring to the Gentiles, are last who will be first, and some, referring to the Jews, who are first, who will be last. It's not a universal law, obviously. Jesus said some instead of all, right? Even though we're Gentiles, as I reflected on this, regarding privilege, we're a lot more like what? We're a lot more like Jews in terms of privilege or in terms of what we have been given. The number of Bibles in our homes, what, what has been afforded us being in this country, the heritage we have, the number of churches on every corner. The Jews had been given much, and I believe we have been given much. If you're a Christian, I would not want to cause you to go through life questioning your salvation. Or let's say, if you're a Christian, I wouldn't want to cause you to go through life doubting your salvation. But if you're not a Christian, I would hate for you to have sat under my preaching and had a false sense of security and thought that you were a Christian. In my mind, this passage is one of those very sobering ones that should cause us to examine ourselves so that we would not hear what words from the Lord. Depart from me. I read these verses, and I think that there is 
a sobriety to them, perhaps a healthy fear we should have that should cause us an amount of introspection to ask, have I surrendered my life to Christ? Am I just someone who has engaged in an amount of religious activity? Or have I repented, put my faith in Christ, and, and there's evidence of my salvation? If you have any concern about where you will spend eternity, repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ. I'll be up front after service. I'd consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, we thank you for these verses. I don't choose them. We move verse by verse through your word and encounter what I believe you have for our church. And I think they're so important. What a, what a horrible thing to imagine that I would preach your word to people and, and they would sit under it for some length of time and have believed that they were Christians when they were not. And so I would pray for everyone here, Lord, that has listened to this sermon, that they would have that healthy examination of themselves to see that they're in the faith. Because we read about people who seemed to believe that they were Christians only to find out when it was too late that they are not. I would not want to create any doubt or fear in the hearts of people who are Christians and, ha- and have people live with any amount of uncertainty. I think about John's words that he writes that we would know that we are Christians. And so for those of us who are believers, Lord, let us know that. Let us be confident in our salvation. But if there's anyone here who is unsaved, Lord, don't let them be confident in a salvation that doesn't exist. Give them the conviction and open their hearts so they would be right with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.